Hello, and welcome to this edition of People in Transition. I'm your host, Bob Durst. I've been hiring, firing, and mentoring executives, frontline employees, interns, and job seekers in companies around the world through a host of transitions, some difficult, but most very good. I work with people in Hong Kong, India, Australia, and across the United States. What sets them apart? A lot, but there's more they have in common. And one of those commonalities is transition is a part of life. This experience has given me a bird's eye view on a variety of trends, economies, industry disruptors, and transitions that are big and small. It also brought me into contact with the thought leaders and decision makers you need to meet. The people who can make the difference that matters to you right now. Imagine knowing exactly what to do next and how to know it's time to make your big change. The inside track you're going to access during our future episodes is better than a crystal ball. It's the exact information you need to take that next step. Whether you're a new grad applying for your first professional job, someone looking to transition your work experience into a promotion, launching your own company, or maybe even starting to plan your retirement, you're in transition, and this series is for you. We all know transition can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. And it's even fun when you have VIP access to the future you want. Are you tired of the uncertainty of being passed up? We'll share with you the tools and skills that can take your dreams to the front of the line. So if change is on your horizon, or maybe just the thought of change, you won't want to miss this discussion. It could be the exact edge you need to turn transition into an amazing opportunity. Michael Yanger, thank you so much for being on this episode of People in Transition. I've been looking forward to this discussion for some time now. Oh, Baba, it's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to just chatting about this a great topic because so many people are in transition these days. Michael, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be Perry Mason. That was my objective in life all the way up through when I decided to go to graduate school for business instead of law school. So it, I carried that with me for quite some time. What were the transition moments that occurred to get you from that picture of yourself as an attorney, as a young child, to where you're at today and what you're doing now? Well, I think the first significant transition moment was I, I actually did two bachelor's degrees for various reasons back to back. And I was working in the, the field that I had chosen and I was thinking about law school. And I talked to some people and they basically said to me, you know, if you're going to go to law school now, you really should think about going full time, going to night school, that, 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 that. And so I said, okay, I'm going to business school instead. I mean, it was really that kind of conversation. I knew from where I was at that I needed to have some additional education, I guess. I needed to have some additional knowledge to be successful in the field. And I had the choice. I could have pursued the law career or I could have pursued business. And that's what I did. I went down the business track. It was a shorter track, of course, uh, business school versus law school, and it has paid off, sort of navigated my way through a number of different career changes, but it's always been on the business side. And I've I've not looked back and said, oh, God, I wish I'd been an attorney. Quite frankly, I, I wonder why people want to be attorneys these days. <laughs> it's a tough gig. And Michael, maybe for some of my listeners who might not know you, 
Why don't you describe what you're doing now? Sure. Today, I've got a couple of things going. I'm the uh, COO for a startup in the HR tech space. We have a company called Resume Civ, and we handle the front end of the recruiting process where we we have a technology that evaluates and then ranks resumes to help recruiters with a productivity. It ties into the applicant tracking system and so forth. And then I've got a consulting business on the side where I assist companies with talent acquisition issues, hiring and, and retaining the right talent. Michael, I've read somewhere that 70% of all jobs are not listed on job boards, and some have called that hidden job market. What does that mean? And as an applicant, how do I use that information? Wow. I've not heard that number. I'm going to do some work looking for that number, Bob. I think that there are, I guess, maybe three places where jobs could be and could explain the whole idea that people can't see them. One is they're not posted at all because the company is doing proactive searching by looking for candidates themselves and then inviting those candidates to apply. And this is often true of of either very technical jobs or very high-end jobs. I talked to a CEO just recently and they go out and look for people. They don't post jobs at all because the kind of people that they're trying to uh, attract don't look for things like that. So there are jobs like that. It's a fairly small number uh, relatively, but there are those. Then there are jobs on company job boards. So they don't end up on something like Indeed or LinkedIn. They're on the company board. They're just posted because the company either feels like their name is strong enough or they get, they're get they getting enough applicants. And then there are the jobs that are on the job boards. The jobs that are on Indeed, everybody can get to those, right? You just go to Indeed and you, know, you do your search or you go to LinkedIn and you do your search and you can find them. The jobs that are only posted on the company job board is a little tougher. You have to know that the company, what company is. And so if you're looking in a particular industry, you could look up the companies in that industry and then go to their career page on their website. In terms of the the jobs that are never posted, either the company's filling them themselves or they're using an outside agency to do it, those come to you or you never hear about them. That's just the reality of it. Maybe you know somebody, maybe you know a somebody who's a headhunter who can find those kind of jobs for you. That's the holy grail. And it's tough because those are companies that are looking for people rather than wanting people to look for them. Yeah, my guess that that number includes those positions that are on company job boards. Yeah. And many companies have a process that they go through internally to get approval to even add an FTE on. They might not be posted as of yet just because of the company protocols that they're going through. Michael, what does having a ATS compliant resume mean? That's a new thing, right? That Because ATSs are, are just really becoming so prevalent. It has to be easy to read for the machine. Back in, in the good old days, we wrote resumes that would attract somebody's attention, depending on the kind of job you're going for. Nowadays, the ATS is almost all of them have the capability of parsing the resume. And so they're looking for resumes that are organized in a certain way. There are some parsers that are better than others. And so it's almost like you don't want it to be visually appealing anymore. There should be no graphics. There should be no boxes and multiple columns. It should just be a fairly straightforward page. Dates should be clear and in a standard format. It's okay to have things like experience and education in separate sections. The one thing that really defeats just about it every ATS is a resume that's written around accomplishments. And there's a school of thought that you write a resume around accomplishments. Well, the challenge with that is that accomplishments are are not often linked with the company where you did the accomplishment. And so what you end up with, and this is very common, is you'll apply for a job and they'll say, load your resume, and then it'll take you to the job application. And maybe it got your name right. 
maybe, <laughs> maybe you found your phone number and your email, but you got to fill in everything else manually. That's the, really the challenge of today. These the, the way that resumes are getting parsed, you might not ever get past that. Well, you're going to get past that step. It's just you're going to have to fill it in manually. That's the real challenge. Now, the question you didn't ask, so I'll just take it a little bit further, is what about these bolt-on technologies that are actually looking at the resume and evaluating you based on the resume before you even get to the, the parsing? That's where you can really lose out. There are companies that do this. They run resume through an AI looking for whatever it is they're looking for. And if it's in a format that's difficult for the AI to read, you might lose out. You might not have all of the things that it called for in the job description, that's one of the, the biggest fall downs of resumes. You know, there are some other things that, that these machines are looking for, but that's, it's tricky making sure. But the summary here is keep it simple, keep it clear, keep it clean. This isn't about somebody looking at that and being impressed with the look and feel of the document. That's not what's going to happen with this document. There's a very small subset where how your resume looks could be important if you're applying for some sort of a design job or something. Yeah, okay. But by and large, if you're dumping your resume into an applicant tracking system, it doesn't matter what it looks like because the machine is only looking at the words. They're not looking at pretty pictures. Michael, does that mean that I should load up my resume with keywords that the position might be looking for? Is that going to help me? Well, it will absolutely help you. And let's be clear, they should be honest. That's the other thing that you want to be careful of, that you're not claiming things that you can't do. The job description is looking for, for very specific things and they're not on your resume, then you might not make past a, a machine screen. So yeah, you have to pay attention to that. If, if it's asking for a certain kind of skill and you have it, make sure that that skill is highlighted. I'll just give you one really simple example. Probably almost everybody in the civilized world knows Microsoft Suite tools in some form or another. And all too often, that does not ever show up on anybody's resume. And yet, if the job calls for PowerPoint and Excel, make sure that you mention that on your resume. Because if it isn't there and, and they're using a machine screen of applicants, you could get dropped out simply because you don't have those words on there because that's it's such it's almost table stakes right to have those kind of skills leaving it off it may seem silly because well god everybody knows excel well but if it's not on your resume they may overlook you not for good reasons but they may overlook you do you think age proofing your resume is necessary or do you think that it's just plain deceiving i don't know how you can age proof it although you've raised an interesting question in the diversity equity and inclusion and belonging space there is a school of thought around a redacted resume where dates are taken off and names of schools are taken off and it really just does focus on skills so there are people who are looking at that as a way to avoid the unconscious bias that comes from something like age proofing. It is tricky because then you got the length of the resume issue. Like for example, my resume covers about 20 years of my career, which is less than half of my career. But if you look at the school dates, because they always ask you, when did you go to school? And you can't skip it because it's a mandatory field. It looks like there's this massive gap between when I graduated from college and the first job that's on the resume, the internet and whatnot, it's hard to avoid the age thing and really fool anybody. I don't see how it works in the at the end of the day. If they're going to play that game, if that's the way they're going to hire, you're not going to fool them. Michael, is there any personal information that you would coach someone to put on their resume? That kind of stuff is often not paid attention to. You know, I know we, we all have it in our summary and, you know, it's probably on our LinkedIn page. The risk of putting something personal is you can turn somebody off depending on what the, the personal activity is. You know, 
I like skiing and and I raise dogs and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's not so terrible. You know, if you start straying into things that that come, that focus on your beliefs of some sort or another, you might turn people off. The thing is, I don't think it's really necessary. You know, they're not looking for those kind of things to come from the resume. Those kind of things are going to come from an interview when they talk to you and and start to uncover a little bit more about who you are beyond just your uh, your work life. And so I, I think that the best answer is better to be safe than sorry doesn't really enhance. Now, I mean, maybe you're applying for a job where your hobby really reinforces that kind of work. Okay, you know, that's, there's a judgment call, but but as, as a rule, I don't think that that kind of information really does you any good one way or the other. Someone once told me that when I created my resume, I should use as many action verbs and numbers wherever yeah. possible on my resume. How would you coach someone in terms of that? What that speaks to is results. Uh, you know, if you had a job, whatever job you had, I was a project manager and 95% of the time my projects were on time and under budget, as an example, or I was a sales representative and in 2021, I exceeded my quota by 13% and I was in the top 5% of my group. Those are really important kind of things. You're an executive, you know, my department exceeded our goals or we underspent our budget or whatever the case may be because it shows what your accomplishments are. You know, the fact that you did a job, okay, that's great. What was it that you accomplished when you were doing that job? So there is absolutely value. If you, if you looked at my resume, for example, every job I done, I've got an example or two of something that I accomplished on that job so someone can look and understand the scope and my level of success at that particular job. We've talked a fair amount about things that should be on a resume. Michael, what are some of the mistakes that you've seen people make as they've drafted their resume? I think that some of the mistakes, there's some of the things that we've already touched on, which is they actually leave things off. They don't put dates in. I mean, some of these are, are almost editing mistakes. You know, they leave the name of their school off. And so it's it really, it's about being precise and being accurate. I think the other mistake that is, is certainly something that still goes on today is that people use the same resume for every job they apply for. Now, if you're applying for exactly the same job at every single company where you are applying, well, maybe that makes some sense. And generally, that's not the case. Every job has a nuance. Even if you're, if all you're applying for are sales jobs, there will be things that they're looking for, whether it's the kind of market or the kind of customer or the kind of product or whatever it is. You should spend a few minutes making sure that your resume matches the job description. This is probably the number one thing that I would leave people with. Make sure your resume matches what the job description is looking for. Again, honestly, as opposed to just making it up, because that's what companies are looking at today. I talked to a CEO a couple of weeks ago who had a a chief operating officer job open. He had a thousand applicants. He's looking for exactly what he's looking for, and he's not looking for anything else because he doesn't have time to try and figure out, well, do you really have this or you don't? So if it's not there, then you say, well, next, and it's going to get discarded. The machines that are evaluating resumes will do the same thing. If they're looking for these five skills and you only have four of them, you're going to get an 80% score versus somebody who's got all five. So pay attention to what's on the job description and make sure that your resume reflects it. And if you only have that 80% score, are you coaching them to not even apply? Well, no, because if you're on LinkedIn, for example, and not most people are, and a job comes up and it says, you know, you're a 75% match of this, that may be the best there is. You just never know. Just recognize that th- there's a difference between saying I don't have it 
and then going for it anyway because you think you've got other things or you're strong enough that you can overcome that, just recognize that it's possible you will be screened out because you're not a redheaded, left-handed, underwater nuclear welding expert. You're, you're redheaded, you're left-handed, and you can swim, right? It's, you know, what's missing? This is a judgment call if you're not a perfect match or a really strong match. Because again, that's what the tools are looking for. They're looking for the strong match. I've recruited a lot of positions, but never a redheaded, left-handed, <laughs> underwater nuclear welder. Yeah, there you That's go. It. Michael, let's talk about cover letters for a moment. Should you use them? If yes, what are the key things that you'd expect to be on a cover letter? My recommendation is you use a cover letter if it's asked for. And the reason I say that is if they're asking for it, then they're probably going to read it. If they're not asking for it, then you're potentially putting something in there that's never going to be evaluated. So it's it just, it's something to think about. Yeah, again, if this if you're applying through an ATS, this is certainly true. Now, if, if you're applying and you're sending something to somebody, either because they asked or because you got introduced or because you think that they might actually open your, your email or uh, your letter, sure, you can put a cover letter on it. It should be brief. It should speak to what's your objective, how do you fit, what kind of value you can bring, and suggest next steps. Uh, now, you can do the same thing often in LinkedIn, right? I mean, one of the things that I was coached on and I share with other people is when you apply to a job, for example, on LinkedIn, a lot of people are doing that these days. It tends to be simple. There might be only four or five questions and away your resume goes. Then connect with the recruiter. You can often figure out who posted that job just by looking at the job posting itself. Connect with them and raise yourself up, raise your visibility up. So in a sense, that's a cover letter, right? You're putting yourself out there in this in a little note in your connection request. Always put a note with your connection request. And so if they ask for it, yes. If they don't ask for it, then don't because they probably won't read it. Michael, I've read someplace that some significant percentage, and I've seen numbers as great as over half, candidates have at some point in the interview process lied about something. What's your reaction to this and how would you coach people on this subject? The number doesn't surprise me. And it's a sad commentary that people think that the way to get a job is to lie about something. Um, it's even gotten in some quarters, particularly IT, where the resume is fiction because the person who shows up for the job was not the person in the resume. It's just amazing the links that people go to. My advice is, is tell the truth, right? If, if somebody's looking for 20 years of sales experience and you've got three but you think that those three make a difference, then talk about that. You know, why is it you think that you're qualified to be in this conversation? A lie is going to come back and bite you at some point. I mean, at, at best case, you get fired. You know, worst case, they might prosecute you, depending on what the circumstances are. That's a heck of a way to start a relationship. And I don't know that I'm going to convince anybody who, who would choose to lie in the first place. But I just, it's so easy to get caught up in a lie, particularly if it's something like, where did you go to school? Or what degree do you have? Or what company did you work at? Those kinds of things can all be discovered especially nowadays it's so easy for someone to run a background check on you and, and get chapter and verse one other bit of advice is that your resume should match your linkedin profile and vice versa because companies are looking at that they're looking for consistency do you say the same things on linkedin that you say in your resume and if not then it, you know, again, best case, they might ask you about it. But worst case, they might say, well, this person, one of these documents is not true. Either way, they've told me something that's not true. And so I'm not going to move them forward. That's the risk you run. Michael, do you think the recruiting process itself 
has changed somehow during the pandemic? And I guess a follow-up question is, is that do you think that that change will continue in the foreseeable future? I think the simple answer is yes, of course it changed during the, the pandemic because you went from a situation towards the end of 2019 where jobs were scarce and candidates were plentiful because people were just looking to change jobs to jobs being non-existent. And so, you know, recruiters dealing with just thousands of, of applicants and going through them much more quickly. I think we're getting back to more of a normal, like pre-pandemic kind of situation. I think that the probably the largest fundamental change is that the process has become so much more virtual. For certain jobs, it used to be that, you know, the first thing you did is you came in for an interview, and then you came in for another interview, and then you came in for another interview. But now it is entirely possible, even for fairly senior jobs, that Zoom might be as close to personal as you get. Because quite frankly, you're not going to go into an office. You're going to stay wherever it is that you're seated and, and do this work. So there have been some subtleties. I think the, the recruiting process doesn't change very much, Bob. Source screen interview hire. It's what you do in between those steps that can be interesting. And I think that you just the fundamental difference is the, the shift from too many candidates and not enough jobs to now too many jobs and not enough candidates. And and that'll settle out after a while anyway, because at some point companies will say, well, I've been doing it without people, so maybe I just don't need to fill these jobs, right? So there's going to be some settling of that here over the next year or so, depending on where you think the economy is going. Michael, we hear, we read a lot about the great resignation. Help us understand what that means and certainly what it means for a job seeker. The general term has to do with the fact that an above average number of people are resigning their jobs every month. And that trend is still continuing. It, it started to pick up at the end of last year and is still going on today. And what's different at this point is that often people are resigning without having another job because they're able to find another one fairly quickly. So what it means is a lot of churn in the market. It also means that companies are, are perhaps a little more desperate to hire people. I, I saw one stat. I'll, I'll throw one of your 70% numbers at you, Bob. A survey of CEOs said that 70% of the people they hire is the wrong person because companies are so desperate to hire. And so it's really creating right now a job seekers market where companies are desperate and maybe you can get some more money. You can get some other things that you want. Maybe they don't look at you quite as closely as they would because, again, they're so desperate to have these jobs filled. But it just does mean that there are a lot of job seekers in the market, even though unemployment is fairly low, because you know there are 4 million people or something like that who resigned in May. Well, in April, those 4 million people were thinking about resigning. And so maybe they were looking for jobs and then they resigned. So it's, it, just, it just creates more churn in the market where people are mobile, you know, they're leaving jobs they took during the pandemic that they didn't want, but they needed a job, or they're leaving jobs that won't let them work from home anymore. There are a lot of reasons, and those reasons haven't all gone away yet. Michael, if you were coaching someone who is in transition and you described to them an ideal daily or weekly search schedule that they should follow so that they would have maximum impact and hopefully find their next great job opportunity as quickly and efficiently as possible. How would you coach them for that schedule? The stats I've seen said jobs tend to be posted more towards the end of the week. And so you should be looking aggressively Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because you might get in there sooner than others. If you're looking over the weekend, you're probably going to be looking at things that have already been picked over, that, that might already have a bunch of applicants in place. You should be thinking about that. And so at the beginning of the week, maybe is follow-up time or research time. And then 
doing your your searching and doing your your applications towards the end of the week. We really do live in a at least a seven by twelve world, maybe even more than that, depending on the kind of jobs you're looking for. So it's not to say that you won't find things over you know the weekend and the first of the week, but the reality is that a lot of posting takes place in that Wednesday Thursday timeframe, and you know you want to be in early because you know companies look at those first handful of candidates they get. And if they find what they like, then they just shut off the posting and, and go with what they've got. It does help you to be in there early. You come in towards the tail end, they may never get to you because they find all the candidates they want in the first 50, the first 100. I had a transition coach tell me one time that he coaches his people in transition to set small goals for themselves daily or weekly, as opposed to the singular goal of, I want to find a job, because they felt yeah. that that huge goal might be somewhat demotivating to the person. What's your reaction to that, Michael? I love that because so much of it is about your motivation, right? You should set aside time every day that you're going to do a job search. You can't do it eight hours a day because you're going to go bananas doing that. This week, I'm going to get out three applications. This week, I'm going to rewrite my resume. Give yourself some wins because I tell you, I I talked to to one candidate, applied to 300 jobs and got 10 rejections and one interview. The other 289, never heard from them. So, you know, you got to find the motivations. That's really an astute observation. You got to create some motivation so you keep at it because what are you going to do? You apply 300 times, you got nothing. Well, you got to go do another 300, right? Because if your objective is to get a job, you're not going to get reinforcement or feedback from the recruitment process these days. It's pretty bad, actually, considering how scarce candidates are and how rare qualified candidates are. It's pretty bad how the just in general candidates are being treated by the recruiting process. Michael, we're going to go into our lightning round. I will use a term and you get 10 or 15 seconds to give your thoughts on that that area. Let's start with elevator speech. Yes, keep it 30 seconds because you never know what that person might have in their back pocket. Dress for the interview. Yes, you should understand what the culture is of the company. That doesn't mean always wear a suit. Maybe it means wear an Apollo shirt. Understand what the company culture is before you go in as best you can. Asking for feedback from the hiring manager on how you did in the interview. Every single time, because how else do you learn where you might have tripped yourself up? The way to frame the question is, do you see me proceeding in this process? And if not, why? Body language during the interview, especially over Zoom. Oh, yeah. You've got to be engaged and people will see it. If you're slouched in your chair and you're wearing a hoodie, I mean, come on. (laughs) Do you want the job or not? Yeah. Work to match the intensity of the interviewer. That also is important because there's a real subliminal message there that you're in sync with the person you're talking to. If they're into it, leaning forward, if they're a little relaxed, it's okay for you to be a little, little relaxed and they will see it, whether it's Zoom or whether it's in person. Thank you notes after the an interview. Oh, totally. If nothing else, because it's just the way to be polite. You may not get an answer, but absolutely. And boy, if, if you can, send it a hard copy because that, that is so classy. But definitely send them a thank you. Michael, any books or other resources that you'd recommend to someone going through their own personal transition? You know, they're, they're not any books. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Bob, the kind of books I read have nothing to do with what it is that I do because I spend so much time reading blog posts, things like listening to your podcast. 
those are the kind of things that you should do. Get you get some real life experience. LinkedIn has got some great resources on what it takes to find a job. There's some great newsletters. Those are the kind of things that you can target that are going to give you tips and tricks that you know are, are real world approved. I'm an avid reader, but uh, not of the kind of books that apply to this particular field. And Michael, final question: If our listeners only remember three things as they go through their own transition. What are those three things that you want them to keep in mind that maybe they can apply starting Monday when they're looking? Recognize that you need to match the job description. And it's, so pay attention to that. Match your reply to the job description is probably a number one. Two, be honest, because one, it's gonna bite you if you're not, and two, you know, everybody forgets the lie because it's it's hard to remember. Three, be persistent because even today, you know, we hear this great gap between the number of jobs that are available and the number of people. A lot of that gap is flipping hamburgers, let's be honest, or putting chicken in a bucket. I'm not trying to denigrate the quick service industry. The good jobs are still hard to find. The good jobs are still attracting a lot of candidates. And if what you're looking for is not a uh, just a paycheck or it's not an entry-level job, you're going to have to work at it, which means you're going to have to be persistent because there are going to be other people doing exactly the same thing. Michael Yinger, I want to thank you so much for taking time and sharing your experiences, your insights into the recruiting process. I know that my listeners are going to get a great deal from this. So Michael, thank you so much. Bob, it's been a pleasure, and I hope at least one person gets a job because they pick up something out of this conversation. That would that would make my day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We're working in unprecedented times as the world responds to the recent COVID-19 crisis. The fact is that even those who are not in transition understand it could be right around the corner next month or a year from now. The purpose of these episodes are to give listeners support and the critical tools to adjust with the winds, wherever they come. I'll continue to introduce you to guests who have successfully, perhaps gracefully, or without too many battle scars, survived their own obstacle courses, and can share useful information on how to steady your ship or your world in this uncertainty. If today's message was helpful to you, please share it on social media. If you have any questions or podcast ideas for future conversations, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I appreciate your time. You're investing in sharing these important conversations with me, my guests, and others who are going through life transition. Transitions between jobs, life stages, new entrepreneurial ventures, or whatever life brings. Change is constant. The more prepared you are for it, the better and easier the change will occur. Thank you again. This is your host, Bob Gerst. See you at our next episode of People in Transition.